This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. And welcome to a sort of throwback edition of the Film Jive podcast. We are recording this episode on September 14th, 2014. My name is Zach. And my name's Nick. This is episode number 80, where we are discussing the latest film from the pair of director John Michael McDonough and Brendan Gleeson with Cavalry, which played in limited release earlier this year. But before we discuss that, Nick... The listeners and myself are dying to know what you've been up to since your last appearance, which I believe was in May. Uh, yes, Godzilla, whenever that came out. Not been up to too much. I've had a bit of a podcast blackout, uh, but um, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, certainly seen lots of films lately. Haven't been away, been working quite a lot, but uh, certainly have been listening to Film Jive as usual and enjoying it. Have you seen a lot of new films that have come out this year? Yeah, quite a few. Is there one in particular that thus far has been your favourite? Yes, favourite film of the year. I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast or not. Locke, starring Tom Hardy, has been my favourite film this year so far. Um, this is the one which is uh, Tom Hardy in a car, travelling down a motorway for 90 minutes, and that is it. And it's, I think, a really good lesson in what can be done with a great script and uh, a great actor. And it's, it's one of those films where it's all very contained, almost like a, a stage play where you simply just have an actor on stage. Um, quite a simple story, but the drama that unfolds is very exciting. Um, it felt quite cinematic for something that's such a simple setting. Um, and I'm very glad I saw it in the cinema. And it also just reminded me how excellent Tom Hardy is when he gets back to basics. Um, I think after all the, the Batman stuff and that's been getting a bit over the, over the top and um, was a bit silly, I think um, this film really reminded you of Tom Hardy's acting chops when he gets down to business. Uh, so have you seen Locke, Zach? I haven't, no. I think it's well worth a look. Just very impressed with what, uh, I think it was a first-time director, very impressed with what he could do with very limited, a limited scope. You know, he didn't need anything sort of grand and epic. It was all quite simple, but an excellent script. I think that's all it took, really, and and one very good actor. It should be said though that you love highways. Highways? You mean motorways? Yes. What makes you think that? You've said many times in the past on this podcast that it's like all I need a movie to do is give me a highway and a cell phone. And I'm happy. Yeah, well, he does. I mean, in this, he uses a lot of Bluetooth. So, oh, technology. You even love that even more then. Oh yeah. Are you looking forward to Mad Max: Fury Road then? Not particularly. Uh, I can't say Mad Max. I've, I think I've seen two, one and two, and uh, I thought they were okay. It's, it's never been a story that's been particularly what uh, brilliant for me. I, th I thought it was okay. Although I gather that the reception to the uh, the trailer or, or some sort of footage that came out recently for this new Mad Max went down really well. So I may get around to having a look at that at some point. But um, I can't say it's something that I'm excited about on my film radar at the moment. But um, I think I'll, I'll keep an eye out for the reviews, see what people think. There is another Tom Hardy film coming out soon where he's playing... Um, He's playing an East End gangster in the 1950s or 60s. 
but not only is he he's playing two East End gangsters who were twin brothers, uh, which is meant to be very good. That's coming out later on this year as well, I think. So um, can't remember the name of it. So Tom Hardy seems to be quite busy at the moment. Okay. Well, um, I think we can move on to our review of Cavalry. And Nick, would you please read the plot synopsis? Uh, during Sunday Confession, Catholic priest Father James is told by an unknown parishioner in his congregation that they will try to kill him in a week's time as retribution for sexual assault the parishioner endured from another now-deceased priest as a child. The good priest goes about spending his final week travelling through his small coastal Irish village, confronting his own mortality and, may, and many dispirited villages. For anyone that doesn't know, Cavalry is from the same director that brought us The Guard, also starring Brendan Gleeson, and I believe, if I remember correctly, you were pretty enthusiastic about that film, correct? Yes, very much enjoyed The Guard. So what did you think of their follow-up? Quite different. Um, whilst it had some comedy elements um, in the same, same way that The Guard had uh, a fair amount of comedy, this was certainly much more gallows humour, uh, pitch black humour. It really wasn't um, a laugh out loud film like The Guard was at times. But I thought it was a, it was a pretty strong follow up. Uh, I think the characters were interesting. You got to see some lovely vistas of Ireland. And it really touched upon um, a lot of religious points. It, not so much just focused on the religion, but more what uh, people think of religion i think in in modern ireland in particular uh such as the perception of of priests in the modern day um that there are more and more stories coming out in in the news about priests abusing young children and and whether people trust those those sort of individuals anymore whether people really trust the church anymore um how the church has does have a lot of money and uh, is telling people what to do with their lives and how to spend their money. But the church is, is pretty wealthy. And I thought there was a lot of interesting elements about religion in uh, Brendan Gleeson uh, put in a very strong performance. And uh, he, his world-weary priest, um, real, his realistic, uh, or priest that's a realist, um, was, was a very interesting character to follow. And um, a really good anchor. For the, for the film, for the hour, hour and 40-some minutes you were with him, he was a very interesting character to stick with on his journey. As you got to learn more about the village and the villages in there, um, all, their different, uh, all the different types of characters there, um, really enjoyed it, actually. I thought Cavalry was, was pretty impressive and uh, a very strong Irish film. Uh, what were your thoughts, Zach? Um, I should admit beforehand that I still haven't seen The Guard, but I have seen both films by John Michael McDonough's brother, Martin McDonough, who's directed In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, and uh, I've never been able to completely wrap my head around what makes, particularly In Bruges, such a special movie to so many people, and I don't know if it's just a cultural divide, but you mentioned the gallows humor, and that isn't something that really resonates with me. So you take that element and you couple it with this sort of sardonic self-awareness that seems to run through all of these films, both brothers' films. Um, and for me, you get like, it's kind of like a nasty pancake. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> and you know what Dr. Phil says about pancakes. No matter how flat you make a pancake, it still has two sides. So... With Cavalry, um, I'll have to admit, I wasn't as impressed by it as you s seem to be. One thing that really bothered me at the start was I felt it made a crucial error, crucial error um, with the decision to conceal the identity of the par parishioner who threatens to kill Brennan Gleeson's character. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, for me, that kind of doomed the story from the start because keeping that a mystery at least for myself, caused me as a viewer to question every character's motive and play detective 
yeah. throughout the entire film. And I actually felt it kind of robbed me from having the philosophical dialogue with the movie that I thinks I think it thinks it's having with me. I I felt it would have been much more interesting as a viewer to know who that person was and know that Brendan Gleeson's character knew who that person was and still watch him treat him exactly the same way that he does in the movie. But you do, when you look back, you can see that. You know, we learn, obviously, who it is by the end of the film. And when you think back to their encounters, you, as you say, he treated him the same as others. You know, he knew what was coming. He knew what this person had said, but he still treated him similarly to all the other villagers. So in, but, re- in retrospect, you get that. But the whole movie, though, my problem is you're looking for clues that don't actually exist. It doesn't, it doesn't have the guts, I guess, to actually give you some indication of who that person is. At least I don't feel. Maybe you figured out who it was from no, something. I, no, I didn't ask. I didn't get it at all. So I, I don't know. It, it feels like a lot of misplaced energy where mm. I'm like sitting there every time he's having a conversation with someone trying to figure out, okay, is this who's going to kill him? Is this who's going to kill him? And – Honestly, I had a completely different belief in who that person was going to be at the end than who it actually was. And yeah. I don't even really care about that. It's just I think if if you know as a viewer who that person is, yes, you can look back and you can see it from Brennan Gleason's perspective, those conversations, but I can't think of uh the character that he meets on the beach. I don't I don't see how their perspective is any different from anybody else's. And I think there's like a whole other subtext that could be taken shape. And I I just felt like deciding to withhold that information felt kind of condescending towards me. It's as, it, it almost came off as if the audience won't bother rest with the rest of the film if they know who the killer is. It just felt like really cheap drama to me. Yeah, I th- I think they had that... Uh that plot thread running through the film in the background to keep people interested and looking for clues. Like you mentioned, perhaps they weren't there, but I think people were looking for clues to try and decipher who this person was. Um, like I said, yeah, I, and, I, and, and I guess what my, my question is then what is that, that plot thread? What does it mean? Does it actually mean anything by the end? I found the whole climactic final scene on the beach with that character I had no investment in it. I didn't care. Like, it was very underwhelming. And I guess I just, I don't understand what that mystery is doing thematically in conjunction with the other elements of the story. Yeah. I don't think the, the whodunit story is executed quite as well as, as the rest of the film. I would say it's probably the, the weakest part. The confrontation on the beach is, is a little bit, Forced, you feel like you could have thrown any character in there, and it uh, wouldn't have made much difference amongst the uh, the villagers and amongst the suspects. I think what they're they're going for there is that he is a, a strong enough man to to he, he had an opportunity to run away. Uh, right. Well, yeah, I, they're going for around. he's Jesus Christ. That's what they're going for. Yeah, I, mean. I think they are. They are. They which you know is is a little arrogant, but. Um, it's the case that he believes in his fellow man, this priest. He believes in humanity. Um, even with all the nasty individuals he comes across, um, all the nasty stories he, he gets told, the way people treat him, they tease him, they're mean to him. Someone burns his church down, someone kills his dog. But he believes in humanity at the end, and he believes in the goodness in, in all of us. Which um, I think it, what they're trying to show is that he's an admirable character. Maybe, you know, Jesus Christ is overselling it a bit. But he's an well, I mean, really, though, when you when you take the title of the film, which is a a term that directly relates to the hill where Jesus Christ was crucified. Yeah. And when you look at what happens to, I believe it's Father James, he's beaten. Uh, he's tempted by alcohol. Yeah. Um and he's he's willingly knowing that going to his death um I think 
the Jesus Christ illusion or whatever is is that, pretty sound. You yeah. know, I think uh, I, I'm sure there's other elements that we could extrapolate if I saw the film multiple times. That is is that a problem, Tim? Uh, it's just it goes it gets into uh, a bigger complaint that I have is that I just feel the film is very broad in its portrayal of everything. I mean, it's very much adopting this Agatha Christie, 10 little Indian structure where every scene is a two hander. Every character represents some kind of metaphor. In this case, I can't directly link it back, but I got the impression that each character in the village was a representation of one of the seven deadly sins. And, I, I I just, again, it, there's just something very broad about approaching this story from that perspective. Typically, this would be a movie that I should completely embrace because I think what's it, what it's attempting to do is incredibly didactic and philosophical. But my problem is I don't feel like anything, any of those small scenes and dialogues that he has with these characters actually build off of one another and create any sort of forward motion. There's no momentum. It's like driving down the street and hitting a stop sign every five minutes. It almost felt like every character in every scene was like an individual movie. And I guess, you know, it's naturally because of its structure going to have an episodic quality to it, but that felt just kind of inflated by the approach that it took. And Mm -hmm. I just don't know that that the decision to structure it the way that it is actually does a good service to some of the ideas in the film. And I actually think that's why when you read about the movie, there seems to be so much ambiguity surrounding the final image and what, or the ending of the film and what that means and what you're supposed to think of it. I'm not saying that it should have a concrete answer for you. I mean, the things that it's dealing with, you can't provide, here's the answer, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I just don't know that it ever gets to a dense enough place where it earns some of the themes that it's going for. Mm. I I guess I don't understand why he has to be Jesus Christ, why it has to adopt that characterization or something. It just, it feels almost, it feels too easy to me. I don't, I don't know. But they did focus on a lot of different religious aspects. So we mentioned how, the trust in the church and in priests after all the um, nasty incidents that have, that have come out in the press over the last 10, 20 years. People have lost trust in the church. Um, there's also an element, I think, a very important part of the film is all about forgiveness, um, forgiving characters of their sins. They talk a lot about, um, so for instance, Brendan Gleeson goes to see one character who was a murderer and um, you know, absolving people of sins, should that be... Should that be okay? You know, someone's committed a, a horrific sin. Should they be told your sin's been forgiven and, and be content to move on with that life? There's one character, it's the police chief, I think, who doesn't agree with that. Also, I think you were talking about the final scene of the film. I, for me, that was all about forgiveness. I thought the, the daughter, it seemed to me, the fact that she was even going to speak to Chris O'Dowd was that she was she was willing to forgive him for killing her father. That's what jumped out at me from that scene. That's what I thought it meant. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. yeah. There was also the the benefits of the church. So whilst we've seen that a lot of these villagers were mean to Brendan Gleeson, put him down, you know, to clearly show that they, they devalued the, the use of the church, didn't think it was important in their lives. By the end of the film, you get a sort of montage shot of all of these different odd, struggling characters we've seen. And they're they're all um, people who have weaknesses, needed help, needed support. A good example would be the wealthy banker who um, spoke to Brendan Gleeson at the end, saying that he's not not all right, he needed help. Um, And whilst these characters might point and laugh at Brendan Gleeson and and his faith and, and... devalued the church i think at the end of the film it was it tried to give you a balanced point that uh they also needed this church maybe not for religious and spiritual reasons but just for help and support in their lives um so i thought there was a there was sort of a balanced argument there for and against what what did you think of the supporting 
characters? Um, most mostly interesting. Mostly interesting. The odds, uh, one or two that were a little bit dull. I thought Aidan Gillen's character was weak. I have to say, I don't. I don't think he put in a very good performance either. No, but I don't. I he's don't really know exactly. He's, I don't know what it is, but in the most recent series of Game of Thrones, he's suddenly. I mean, he, he used to overact a little bit anyway, but he has gone into overdrive with his overacting. Um, in the, well, in his the, line readings are just insane. Like, yeah, I, I mean, his accents... I, I don't actually know what his natural accent is, but in this it felt a bit forced. I think he's Irish, so I'm not sure really why it sounded so strange, but he he does overdo everything, and um, certainly lately, I don't, I don't know if he's, he's gained a bit of confidence from Game of Thrones or what it is, but he's... He really stood out to me as as not quite fitting at all. But then, well, uh, his his physical appearance is insane because he yeah. looks like the devil. I yeah, mean, he's got the yeah. slick hair, the the mustache, and the goatee. It's yeah. like, but um, but most of the other characters, Chris O'Dowd, his daughter was interesting. There was the young boy who who sort of had unusual nasty thoughts. Who wanted to join the army? I thought he was very interesting. So I, I thought most of the villagers were. You know, quirky, odd, um, and and interesting characters. And I thought most of the actors did a pretty good job. You know, most of them, to be honest, I, I weren't very, I wasn't very familiar with, wasn't aware of them. And I think that might have helped. Whereas someone like Aidan Gillen, who you already had ideas in your head, you know, he's a little bit typecast, suffered a bit from that. I thought they played like Batman's Rogues Gallery. <laughs> yeah, I I wasn't that. It was actually one of my one of the things I disliked most was just how cartoony a lot of them felt, in my opinion. Some of their conversations weren't very grounded or realistic. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Dylan Moran as the wealthy banker at times. Oh, that whole scene with him pissing on the painting. Oh, it's just brutal. Yeah. I see how they function as a, like a Greek chorus that's chiming this sort of inner oppression. Um, but again, I just, I felt like at times they were just so broadly portrayed up against, uh, a character who, for the most part, Brendan Gleeson, I feel is very grounded. Yeah. And I, I just, I didn't feel if it, the film's about, you know, the humanity, the good in humanity and forgiveness, it was hard for me because most of the characters didn't actually feel like human beings to begin with. Um, and I, I think the, the reason they're a little bit over the top is to to make Brendan Gleeson question why am I even doing this? You know, this is not helping. This is hard work for me. I'm not. I'm clearly not have, connecting with these people or doing any good work here. So I'm going to leave. Um, and I think it was the that they had to push him away. That was the idea. So by the the end of the film, he think he gives up and and leaves and says, "Screw it. There's no point helping these people. They're horrible individuals. They're never going to change." Um, and yet he turns around and comes back. And I think, again, I think it was Brendan Gleeson's character that really did it for me. I thought it was a fantastic performance from him. Um, it's no Mad-Eye Moody, though. No Mad-Eye Moody. Very different sort of character than what I've seen him play for a while. Um, I mean, the guard, he's a really mean character with a sort of hint of a nice guy in there, but he's mostly mean and corrupt. Mad-Eye Moody, he's a pretty tough individual in that uh in bruges again very different character i think he's quite a versatile actor but because of his appearance he is usually playing tough guys guys who are you know are, are evil uh so it's nice to see him play a, a pleasant character a decent character i definitely agree that i think he's the strongest element i was really struck by how sort of um, authoritative he was and how much control he seemed to have over each scene and I like his the character's sort of stoicism and how gruff he can be in certain moments things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the typical uh, portrayal of a priest on film and he would he would question his uh, his colleague when the things if he didn't think the church was doing things right he would he would uh come out and say it. He, would, he wouldn't always agree with the way the church did things. Well, he's he's able to level with people yeah. that is, I think, kind of unusual to see. And I one thing that I thought he did really well was, it's mentioned in the film that his character lived this whole life 
before he became a priest. Yeah. And I actually thought the life the life outside of the film that his character has lived is very much felt within the story. Which I think is an important oh, I agree. Yeah. aspect to a priest in that living your life before you're starting to tell people how to live their lives. I think it's a good idea to have lived your life a little bit before. I'm not saying that priests can't live lives, but I think people would value that advice more if you... So we've, we've learned that Brendan Gleeson's character had a wife. He's obviously got a daughter. Um, he had, had a drinking problem. After all of that, he lost his wife. And after all of that, he decided to become a priest. And I think that taught him some life lessons. Whereas the, the other priest, his younger colleague, you know, clearly went straight from school to becoming a, a, a priest and um, is, is lacking in those life lessons that Brendan Gle- that the world-weary Brendan Gleeson is uh, well aware of. I think that makes a difference to his character, knowing that backstory, knowing he's had a tough time, and yet he still is uh, a man of God, and he hasn't fallen to the dark side. One thing I will say is um, some of the scenes near the end where his character is unraveling, you know, after the death of his dog, the burning of the church, did, his did daughter leaving. Did we ever learn who killed his dog? No, because the person on the beach claims it wasn't them. Yeah. So you never actually we never find, find out. out who that was. But, but then also, um, I guess without spoiling it, that conversation eventually turns to where I started to think maybe he was lying a little bit because he asks him, did it make him sad that his dog had died? Yeah. You know, and then did it make you sad when you read all these priests were molesting these children? But, um, I will say I'm being very negative. Um, some of the things I did really like is you mentioned his character's goodness earlier. That is something I can say that I did admire about the movie is that it is, it does attempt to, center a story around a character who is a genuinely good person, but he has his own share of flaws. He's not sort of an idealized vision of a, of a priest or the opposite of that. Um, he's just generally someone who has a lot of integrity. Um, and I think that's kind of rare. You don't see that a lot in movies. You either get the anti-hero, you get the sarcastic asshole or some variation of those two things. Yeah. I also thought Kelly Riley was really impressive. And maybe it's just because all I've typically seen her in is in very villainous roles. But I just thought it was interesting that she was playing a character who is a very strong individual, but is someone who is very sort of emotionally fragile. Yeah. And I like how she functions in the story. And I thought her scenes with Brennan Gleason, at least for me, were the most compelling and, and relatable because. They aren't necessarily constructed out of these very opaque monologues that these other characters have. It's like their their relationship felt like a real human father daughter relationship, and the baggage that is associated with it felt real and relatable. So, I, I liked those scenes in the film probably the most out of anything else. Okay. One thing I do want want to touch on is the is the comedy, which there isn't that much of it in this film. How many, uh, how many times did you laugh whilst watching the film? Oh, never. But I'm just saying that this one thing, I don't, I find it really disagreeable, the self-consciousness that works its way into the script. Like, I, I hate things like the, that's quite a startling opening line or, there aren't that many good lines or there's a conversation at some point about characters talking about the climactic third act. Did, did uh, you say you did or didn't like seven I hate psych- psychopaths? I actually, here's the thing which is interesting because that's full of it, isn't it? Yes. And I actually of all these films that I've seen from these two guys. That is my favorite one Why? of the group because it fully embraces that. Like it's not trying to sneak that in where it can get like that's the whole movie is just that. And I'm not saying – I don't think Seven Psychopaths is a great film or anything like that. But it just – the whole movie is self-aware. It's not – it's just kind of – it's completely consistent in that. Whereas this film, it it's made as like an ironic joke where it will come in here and there. And it just doesn't 
fit, in my opinion, tonally at all. Like, why... I, I mean, I understand their thing is the sort of meta elements, but to me, those those else moments where the characters are talking like that break the momentum of the story. And for some reason they come off as very pretentious and almost like self-congratulatory. They feel like they're there more because they need to be for the filmmaker than they are there for the characters. Like there's no reason why those characters have to talk like that. And there's no reason why an audience has to hear them talk like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know people really like that humor, but sometimes, but I just, I didn't see why it belonged in this. Like there's no other moments in the film that like reinforce those kinds of ideas. So these little like throw away lines that come here and there, it just felt kind of weird. Yeah. You probably um, loved it. I, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I, you I, loved it. I Go appreciate ahead, say it. Them. Give it a kiss. Uh, I appreciate them. I, I think this was a film that um, grim's not the, the right word, but it's got a sort of gloom to it. For most of the film, it's rather it, it just has this heavy weight hanging over it, particularly when the, in the first scene, the guy gets threatened and it has a week to live. And it just um, it's never it never feels particularly light. So I think they need to try and get a, uh, a few not jokes or laughs, but just a few lighter moments in there to make you have sort of a little smile or a chuckle to yourself. Isn't that just such, like, cliched, like, English humor or Irish humor? Like, isn't that just kind of a thing that um, all these... Maybe, maybe. It, it makes me smaller. Like, gallows humor, like you were talking about, like, that is a very common thing you find in, like, Irish literature and things like that. Yeah, or self-deprecating humor. Yeah, like, this ironic, hopeless humor approach is just something that's very common in most Irish writing and... Yeah. Uh, uh, that That's fine. I just... It works for me. I think it's right. As long as it's it. only in small doses, which it is in this film. And like I said, if you want to go crazy with it, like Seven Psychopaths, that's fine too, as long as you're up front and letting your audience know this is how it's going to work. For, for me, it worked. I thought it wasn't too much. I thought it, it had a... It was the right balance. Um, visually, what did you think of the movie? Uh, you loved it. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought there's some beautiful shots of Ireland. It made Ireland look uh, very nice. I've never been to Ireland myself, but I'd, I'd love to go at some point. Other than that, I, I didn't. I wouldn't say the camera work was particularly revolutionary or anything. But um, there was some quite long. Uh, well, were, were there many long shots? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I, 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 long takes or yeah, long, long takes. Like, I mean, I don't remember any particularly long takes or anything like that. I, it was uh, nothing. It was pretty ordinary, to be honest. They, they made Ireland look nice. The actors all looked, uh, you know, I, yeah. I would say it made Ireland look good, but um, I wouldn't say it was anything to write home about in terms of the cinematography. It's handsome. Yeah, it's very minimalistic. I actually, I think the Ireland. I think it's from what I gather from the location, it's the northwest coast. It certainly looked all, it was all very rural and, you know. Y yeah, um, that felt like a unique landscape to tell a story. Um, I, I think it really stands out when you have scenes taking place along the beach or near the ocean. Um, mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of, um, there's a, a period in like American painting where there's a lot of regional work and it happens a lot during the great depression where it's focused on finding sort of like this stark beauty in very rural landscapes i actually think the starkness is maybe a little excessive in this film and maybe dilutes some of the visual impact of certain scenes because it falls into such the imagery is so repetitive the way he frames things and how he edit scenes together it becomes very patterned um so I, I might have liked a little more i guess mobility with the camera but uh the photography is by larry smith who also photographed the guard and uh he's done both Wy nicholas winding refn's movies only god forgives and bronson just from seeing those two films, uh, I can definitely see similarities in the approach to the work. I mean, his camera work, I guess, 
is very much there's sort of a quiet intensity that I can appreciate. And I, I at least think the way they shot this film is maybe appropriate given the subject matter. But um, the one thing about those Vista shots of Irish, of the Irish countryside, I'm never really a fan of helicopter Vista shots. It's just very bland looking to me. And I, during the credits or the end credits, that's fine. But I actually think those things are implemented because they know that this two-hander scene-by-scene construct is not going to, people aren't going to be able to sustain their energy through it, so they have to break it up with this landscape photography. And it's not anything I couldn't look at on the computer. Like, that's the only thing with landscape photography and films a lot of times is just like, it doesn't, it's not anything that somebody probably doesn't have on their computer as a screensaver. It's just, I don't know. There's it, It's imagery that doesn't feel very inspired to me. But mm-hmm. what what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about the guard? Uh, uh, about the guard? Um, no, I don't think so. Apart from do you I think, still is, prefer the guard it, to this isn't it, film? Isn't it pronounced Calvary? Not Calvary, Calvary? yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I thought so. it was Calvary. Um, do I prefer... Yes, I think I prefer The Guard. Just because it's a bit more mischievous. A little bit more humour in there. But I think this is a very admirable film, well worth checking out. Mostly for Brendan Gleeson's performance. I think a lot of actors wouldn't have hit the high standards that he does in this film, and as a result, the film wouldn't be as interesting. But it, it's a good one. It's, it's a bit different. I don't think you see many other films like this, and it, it deals with topics on religion. Um, which again, not many films are brave enough to do that. And um, I thought it was it was an interesting film. Now, are are you aware that this is apparently a part of a trilogy? Yes, I know that there's a third film um, that is currently filming or soon will be again with the same director and with Brendan Gleeson, who's playing a paraplegic, I think. And um, I don't know much more beyond that. And the, set in the, Camberwell. Have you ever been to Camberwell? Camberwell. Oh, in London, yeah. And uh, I guess the title of the film is The Lame Shall Enter First, but it's a part of the glorified suicide trilogy. Right. So so I think we know so we know what's going to happen to Brendan Gleeson at the end of the third film, then? I guess so. Yeah. I'm sure a bit, you know, just like this focused on religion, the guard focused on corruption and racism a little bit. It sounds like that one will be focusing on the life of a paraplegic and the challenges that they come across. In a film about a depressed paraplegic, I'm there. It sounds <laughs> like my thing. I don't know. I think I'd rather see sex tape maybe instead. Or or let's be let's let's be cops or whatever it's called. I was thinking when I watched the trailers for Let's Be Cops the other day, I was thinking like what's the equivalent of a Let's Be Cops movie like in 1960. Not a movie about cops, but just that level of entertainment value. Where is that? Probably the, the uh, do you know the Carry On films? No. Uh-uh. Uh, that's a very long series of British films which um, deal with uh, bawdy humour. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that they're still on TV nowadays. They're, they're, they're pathetic comedy films. Which they made loads of them, at least 30. And I think they maybe started in the 60s, probably more like the 70s, though. And well, they're, they're 30 carry-on films? They are atro- atrocious. Maybe a carry-on film drive special where we talk about <laughs> each one. <laughs> oh, God. Don't think I can handle that. How many jive turkeys are you going to give the guard? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep calling. The, uh, Calvary, I'll give four. Not quite as good as The Guard. Well worth seeing, though. I still think it's a strong, strong film. Um, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near some of my favourite films of this year. Probably, maybe just creeping into the top ten, but more, more like top twenty. And I'll be giving it three out of five jive turkeys. So, because Nick is on the show today, we're actually going to read an email we received, I think, nearly a month ago now that was specifically addressed to Nick, which was sent to us by Michael, who also resides in the UK. Michael writes, Hey Jivers, my name is Michael and I'm from the UK. 
I have been listening to the show for some time now and was sad when Nick departed. Still keep up with the new episodes, though. Anyway, since I know Nick makes the occasional guest appearance, I was wondering if you could address this mail whenever he does. I'm curious to get his thoughts regarding a Dread sequel, whether he's enthusiastic about it potentially being a prequel to the previous film. So what do you have to say about the Dread sequel? Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for emailing. Yes, sorry, I'm not on the show as much as I used to be, but um, I like to pop up every now and again. So, Dread, yes. Um, I enjoyed Dread uh, a couple of years ago with Carl Urban. thought it was an interesting film. Um, and I thought what was best about it was that it was simple. Um, it wasn't too grand. It wasn't too epic, as you often get with uh, big Hollywood films. And I think a, the danger with a Dread sequel, as much as I'd like to see it, I think they need to keep it fairly lean and simple again. I think to get, first of all, they've got very limited funds. Um, from what I gather, uh, it's not a film that uh, the Hollywood studios are going to get behind. It's something that's going to be funded independently or even through Kickstarter campaigns. So funds are going to be very limited. So they can't even afford something big and grand anyway. In terms of doing a prequel, maybe, perhaps an origin story. I've, I've heard some, some people talk about that. I would prefer them just to continue with another uh, just another adventure, just like we had in the in that previous Dread film. And if you've got creative people working on it, I thought the cinematography was great in that first Dread film. Carl Urban was excellent as the character. Um, I can't say I'm a Dread aficionado. I've um, you're not a Dreadhead. Um, no, is that what they call them? I've never um, never read any of the comics, but uh, I've obviously seen the Stallone film, sadly. But um, I've always had a fascination with the character and was keen to learn more. So from that aspect, I think a prequel would be interesting if I could learn more about where he came from. Um, I know there's a very popular story involving um, someone called Judge Death that uh, I think a lot of fans are very keen to see, which I think is probably the, the uh, pinnacle of the comic stories um, that I've, I've heard about. But um, yeah, I would like to see more Dread. I thought the first Dread was great. It deserved better. People didn't go out to see it, unfortunately. I think it just you know, made a bit of money on DVD. Um, I would like to see more Dread, preferably um, as long as it's similar to that first one, keeping it lean and simple. What, what about you, Zach? Did you ever see Dread? I didn't. No, you didn't. Okay. Have you seen the Stallone one? Yes. Yes. Love Fan? it. One of my favorites. He's got that giant bike. I love the idea of... Stallone and Rob Schneider together. Rob Schneider, yeah. Isn't that, it's weird to think about at one point, Rob Schneider was like the go-to comedic sidekick oh, for yeah. big action movies. He was he was everywhere in the sort of mid-90s. He was a big Hollywood actor. Um, I don't know what happened. Fortunately, I think Adam Sandler kept him, kept him going. So I guess if they did make a Dread sequel to get me in the seat, I would need Rob <laughs> Schneider, Schneider somewhere in the movie. They should give him a cameo. Uh, Second part to Michael's email, he writes, I'd also love to get his thoughts regarding 24, Live Another Day, that premiered back in May of this year. Personally, I loved the season and found it a return to the strong emotion and intensity of the original series. So uh, I guess this means we're going to have to visit Kiefer Corner. Yeah, I guess this is a return to Kiefer Sutherland's Corner, yeah. We haven't done that for a while. So welcome back to Kiefer Sutherland Corner, everyone. 24 Live Another Day. We haven't had a new Kiefer film for a while um, because he's been busy on this show. As anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while will know, I'm a big fan of Kiefer, big fan of 24. Um, when I heard that they were doing it in the UK, I was pretty excited. And they actually filmed uh, just round the corner from where I live. Five-minute walk away from Kennington Tube Station. So if you want to stalk Nick, yes, you know where to go. You may see me around Kennington Tube Station. It was episode two, and Jack came out of a shop, which I've been in before, ran across the road, went into Kennington Tube Station. I was absolutely shocked and stunned when I saw that. I couldn't believe it. They filmed just down the road from me, and I never found out. Oh, another interesting fact. They, they filmed something right outside my flat for a, a film called Secret Service uh, with Colin Firth and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, which is coming out, I think, 
either end of this year or start of next year, some sort of spy film. We've got to see a few car chases outside my flat, which is quite fun. Anyway, back to the question. 24 Live Another Day. I really enjoyed this series, actually. So they've, they've condensed it down from 24 episodes to 12. Whether the title makes any sense is, is uh, up in the air. But 24 Live Another Day, I enjoyed it. And the condensed format improved it, I thought. It meant that um, those series that were stretched out so long and sometimes had repetitive storylines, that didn't happen anymore because the time was tighter. They had half the time now to tell the story. They didn't disregard all the history of the show, so that was good for, for big fans of it. They used a lot of London. Um, they used a lot of interesting locations in London. I thought it was a good story. It brought back a few old villains from the, um, from the previous show, and I, I really enjoyed 24 Living of the Day. I watched it all from start to finish. Um, I would say it's one of the stronger series they've done so far. I think it's given it a very good chance of future 24, whether that is a, a film that they've been trying to do for years and years, or if we get another mini-series. Jack Bauer's character kept on evolving, kept on having some pretty tough decisions to make during the day. And uh, I th- and it was great to see him in a, a very different location like London. I would hope that if they do another series, they do something similar in another location. So so really enjoyed 24. He didn't have any tough decisions to make at night? At night. Well, you said he had tough decisions during the day, so no tough oh. decisions at night? Oh, uh, there were some tough decisions at night as well, yeah. Oh, okay. But do you, do you know how they, what they did was, um, so it's only 12 episodes. On that last episode, they suddenly jumped forward 11 hours and 55 minutes, and that made it 24 hours. I thought that was a bit of a, bit of a naff <laughs> way of getting around it. So eleven hours and fifty five minutes. So yeah, so, was, so they just had a, a, they just had a scene at the end of the last episode um, to make to take it round to twenty four hours instead of just. Oh, it would have been cooler if the last episode would have just been five minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you can tell, Zach Zach's not a big twenty four fan, but um, it's very. I've pop- just never. Very, I've never actually watched it. It's just not a concept well, I, I actually that went I find back that the curse and watched the first series uh shortly before this one came out and i have to say i was a little bit disappointed um because of the 24 episodes it does stretch out a lot and there's a lot of filler in there and it's also quite repetitive his family get kidnapped in the first episode takes him about 10 hours to recover them two hours later they get kidnapped again (laughs) um I was very disappointed. Well, not very, but I, I was surprised how, um, not bored, but just the storytelling techniques are, um, are not as advanced as they are nowadays. TV's evolved quite a lot in terms of uh, time in particular. It's, nowadays, it's more popular to have a, a series that's 8 or 10, 12 episodes. Um, you know, the, the biggest shows like Game of Thrones, etc., are only 10 episodes a series now, whereas when... Ten years ago, you'll be getting twenty-episode series. So, Lost is a good example. The first couple of series are twenty-something episodes, but by the last series, it's only about fifteen episodes. So, TV's evolved quite a lot in that sense, and I think Twenty-Four needed to to change with it and um, not stretch out their stories too much. That was the um, that was what was I think suffering. Did his family get kidnapped again in later seasons? Um. Yeah, probably. Probably. There's, I mean, there's always a friend of Jack's that gets kidnapped. He has to save. Uh, but, but yes, it was. Um, it was good. You know, it got back to that. It's basically like Die Hard on TV. You know, which, um, which was good fun. Oh, I hope it's better than the latest installments of the Die Hard. Oh uh, yes, I, I I've given up on Die Hard after number four. I said that's it for me. I'm not doing any more. Okay. Thank you, Michael, for sending that email. I'm sure Nick appreciated it. Of course I did, yes. So anyone that would like to send us an email for the listener feedback section can do so by reaching us at filmjive at gmail.com. Nick, thank you for being here. No problem. What's on the next show? Well, next episode we're going to be looking at Island of Lost Souls, released in 1932 and starring Charles Lawton. Wow.
Well, make sure you do an edition of Kiefer Corner. Yes, I I know Andy will pick up the slack. <laughs> Is there anywhere listeners can keep up with you on the internet? No. No? No, there isn't. You're off the grid completely. I, I'm not on Twitter. Best way to do that, if you want to contact me, emails, email Film Jive and uh, Zach will pass it along. I'll, I'll respond to it on my next return, my next episode. Which I was going to mention, people can't expect to hear you a couple more times this year, right? Yes, yes. So we're, we're thinking of, um, what was it, Interstellar and yep. and maybe around Christmas for The Hobbit. Yes. Although I heard you talking about The Hobbit not too long ago and it didn't sound like you were, you were up for it. Oh, I'm completely enthusiastic about doing the episode. Yeah. I'm not necessarily completely enthusiastic about seeing the film, I guess oh, is what okay. I'm saying. Okay. But I, I do think it would be appropriate to at least do the last ep- the oh, last film. Got to finish, we've done the, first got to finish the trilogy, yeah. yeah. Well, we've got to find something new for the following Christmas. Oh, yes. I, well, I thought they were going to do... The, the third film's going to break up the Hobbit, finish the <laughs> Hobbit film, but then they're going to pick up another trilogy oh, for the I'm next sure three years. They'll find something. Right? There's always money. We stuff. could always do, we could do, we could go back each December and do the uh, extended editions. <laughs> or Lord of the Rings. We never did that. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, so Interstellar, which, um, you know, an intriguing film coming from, from Nolan. Not, what, what that's October, November time. And then, uh, and then, then the Hobbit. Yes, yeah, so I should be back for those too. Um, of course, you can find Andy on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast, and he can be followed on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And like I mentioned earlier, you can get in touch with us by sending your emails to filmjive at gmail.com. So thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.